Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> This episode was first broadcast in 2009. Hello and welcome to the special International Women's Day edition of Diffusion Science Radio. I'm Victoria Bond. And I'm Ian Wolfe. So as a bit of a celebration of uh, the role estrogen has had in science, we're going to talk about the contributions of a few famous ladies. We're going to talk about Marie Curie. You may have heard of her. She was a pioneer in physics. Uh, as well as Rosalind Franklin, who had a huge role in biology and the discovery of the double helix. And finally, we'll talk about Rachel Carson and her important role in environmental science. But first, here are some gender-bending-inducing topics. The CHEM, the Chemicals Health and Environment Monitoring Trust, say that males are a threatened species amongst all species because the world is being feminized by pollution. They're saying that phthalates, P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S, however you pronounce that very carefully, I think, (laughs) used in food wrapping, cosmetics, baby powders, and other things, flame retardants, and PCBs, and pesticides, uh, causing males to become, well, mutated. There's problems with formation of testes, penises, ambiguous genitals in embryonic development. So what you're saying is the the overloading of um, phthalates, phthalates in the environment is causing more and more women to to be born, or is that a bit of a large leap? <laughs> what, what they're saying is that the males that are born mm. aren't functional. A lot of them, if they've been affected by these gender-bending chemicals and the pollution, then they're unfunctional males, so their genitals are abnormal and might not work at all. Huh. And you mentioned that there there were a lot of these chemicals in cosmetics. So that would be really interesting. It would mean that maybe mothers who wear more nail polish or use more hairspray or or use more cosmetics in general, the more feminine, traditionally, would have more feminine offspring. It's entirely possible. Hmm. Because all these things, we just didn't know that they were dangerous. So there's another report here from Dr. Howard Snyder at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia who says he has to repair the genitalia of about 300 baby boys per year. And they say that, again, it's phthalates. Mm. In this case, from nail polish and children's toys. Children's toys? Yes. I wonder wonder if it's only um, got an effect in utero, or or once they're born it can still have kind of an effect on their sexual development. That's exactly what they're looking at. They're saying that when in the womb, they suspect that some of the boys may have been affected by the phthalates which would disrupt the hormones that develop sex organs in the fetus. So I'm not sure the children's toys maybe that affects the next generation, hmm. your brothers or sisters. I, or, wonder, I wonder if there's a trend of um, gender surgery that, that's been required. I mean, is it actually increasing or is it just kind of a scare? He says it's twice as much as when he first started his practice 30 years ago. Wow. So it looks... He said his main defect is... Hypospadias, which is when the male organs don't develop completely, causing the urethra to exit the underside of the penis. Mm. And it can take several operations to reverse. Hmm. 
Interesting. Yes. Well, in some other gender news, um, they actually discovered a bisex bird. So a bird where half of its brain was cellularly male and the other half was female. This is not just a, a bisexual bird. This is a bird that literally half man, half woman. Yeah. So if you actually look at this bird, it's really interesting because um, the plumage on one side is traditionally male, so very flamboyant and colorful. And the plumage on the other side is very dull and, and typically female. And what they found was um, they could actually, they, they looked at the brain of this bird, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, and they found that there were cellular differences. So the, the side that was male had this um, typical song circuit, which allowed the bird to sing. And what they're, what they're inferring from um, this bird example is that maybe our brains are, are more genetically determined than we thought because there were a few theories about um, gender identity. You know, is it is gender identity determined by hormones in utero or is it determined actually genetically by our DNA? And I saw a little bit of that story. Didn't they say that that bird also had like both, or it was hermaphrodite, it had both organs? Yeah, I think so. I think it was definitely split evenly <laughs> down the middle. It's hard to say anything because birds are actually, um, the male birds are XX and, oh. and their genotypes are determined through estrogen, like high levels of estrogen in uh, developing birds makes a male. So, I mean, how much you can infer to human development is, you can't really say. Another gender identity story is mice, where you've heard of pheromones, right? That most mammals have vomeronasal organ which detects the pheromones. So our sixth sense. A sixth sense, exactly. And, well, with humans, I think only some humans have it and some don't. So it's a, it's spread in the population. I can't remember the percentages. So some people can sense it and some can't. But in mice, it's really important because they found that they could actually change the sense of smell in mice and their gender identity changed. So this suggests that the brain pathways for male sexual behavior are also present in female mice. Mm. So what they did was they activated them by blocking the former nasal organ. So the, the female mm -hmm. mice whose organs were blocked became male? They started acting versa. male. So basically the males mm -hmm. just lost the, lost the ability to tell male from female when theirs was blocked because huh. they were relying completely on scent. But the females, when they didn't have a functioning vomeral nasal organ, even stranger things happened that they also had trouble telling male from female, but, and they start acting like males. Okay, so, so what the study is implying is that the males are generally oblivious, but it's when the females are made to be oblivious that they acquire male characteristics. Down That's definitely something that I would believe. <laughs> well, the behaviours they noted... The male behaviours weren't just male behaviours. They were male behaviours to attract the female mice. Mm. So they were engaging in butt-sniffing and pelvic thrusting. Typically male behaviours. And they also spent less time with their pups and they were less aggressive in defending their nests. Oh. So as you say, gender differences may be a bit less hardwired in this case, they're saying, mm. and more flexible than conventional wisdom suggests. But of course we still don't know how this applies to humans. Something else here where they were saying that they identified a gender gene. So, again, looking at um, sexual development disorders, and they say that there's one in 4,500 people who suffer from a disorder of sexual development, DSD, 
might have a problem where there's sex chromosomes that don't match the genitals. Mm. So things like Klinefelter's or Turner's syndrome. Exactly. Hmm. So what they're saying is that some of these DSD children are born with ambiguous or incomplete genitalia, something like a phthalate children, uh, making it difficult to identify gender. Some develop female genitalia despite being genetically male and are raised as girls. Commonly, it's only recognised at puberty when the girls don't menstruate. Hmm. So, also, many of them are infertile because their internal sex organs are not fully developed, just the external ones. Mm. So, I guess we've got the question of what came first, the genitals or the identity? Mm. They found the presence of the gene called DAX1, which increased the production of protein critical for testicle formation. Mm. So, this seems to be a huge difference in gender development in the womb, whether or not this gene's present. So they're hoping to understand the gene's action so that they could improve the lives of DSD sufferers. And is this, um, is this a gene associated with the X chromosome or the Y chromosome? Naturally, they don't say. Okay. <laughs> that would be interesting because if it was on the X chromosome, then you, you could definitely have problems of gender identity. Yes, hmm. it would make sense. Mm-hmm. So we don't know. More research to be done. More research to be done. So building a little bit on that, I thought it would be interesting for International Women's Day to find out what really makes a woman and what makes a man a man. There's increasingly a distinction, uh, in the medical field anyway, between what is considered gender and what's considered sex. Commonly, gender is more defined as something that's cognitive, so something that you identify within yourself, whereas sex would be your external genitalia. So, you know, a penis makes a man and a vagina makes a woman. Um, But, I mean, most times these two things go hand in hand. But unfortunately, sometimes they don't, which um, is giving us these sexual identity disorders that are becoming more and more, I think, prevalent anyway, popularly. So in utero... The way that gender or sex is defined is kind of the female sex is the one that you that everyone begins with. So unless something happens, all babies would end up female. But in men, something does happen, and that thing is the Y chromosome. And it's got these male patterning genes change not only its physical, the, the fetus's fet- physical development, but also its... Um, cerebral development. So they noticed um, that there are actually differences in between male and female brains. Um, male brains have larger structures like the corpus callosum, the amygdala, the cerebellum, and um, female ones just tend to be smaller and just tend to continue development without any hitches. And all these changes actually happen pretty early in development. So by the eighth week, um, most babies will be male. Or female, and that's why you can actually determine pretty early the 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 sexual gender of a baby using ultrasound. Um, so that's that's the, those are external genitalia changes, um, but you you can't really be sure of a baby's gender identity until after birth. And it's really interesting psychologically if you actually look at these children; they're born pretty much gen- gender neutral. So um, there's a lot of environmental pressure coming from the parents, especially if there's been this ultrasound determination. So, you know, painting the room blue, calling a little baby Tom, and giving him a truck. But there's also um, brain differences that underlie it. So, I mean, I know that my parents raised me totally gender neutral. I was given trucks. I preferred dolls. 
these things just happen. Um, Do you think some of that was social when you, what you saw other little girls doing? Oh, I'm not sure. Um, probably. I mean, it, it would be hard to be the only girl playing with a truck, but what's, what's interesting psychologically is until you're maybe four or five, you don't really understand that gender is something that you own. That, right. that you are. So I remember um, when I was younger, my dad parted my hair off to the side like a boy, and I just started crying because I thought I had become a boy because he had parted my hair to the side. Yes. And uh, that's something that they found in lots of children until the age of maybe five or six. Um, they don't understand that gender is pretty fixed. So gender identity, you know, is, is probably hardwired, but definitely environmentally um, Mutable, and they found that the way that parents raise their their children, especially fathers, fathers tend to touch their daughters more and and roughhouse their boys. Mothers tend to treat boys and girls about the same. So, hmm. also interesting. Let's talk a little bit about these chromosomal alternations that you spoke about before. So these transgender babies or um, kind of oopsies and uh, chromosomal defects. So a really interesting one is Turner syndrome. Have you heard of it? No. Uh, Turner syndrome is when there's only one X chromosome. So so women are born with XX and men are born with XY. So what happens in these Turner syndrome babies is they, they look female. Everything goes swimmingly until they can actually live almost, I mean, their whole lives without knowing that they've got this genetic defect. Um, but they're um, unable to have children. Ah. So that's often how they find out when they when they go to the hospital and they're infertile. Um, yeah, some of them can be mentally retarded, but generally um, their appearance is female and their gender identity is female. Another really interesting one is called Klinefelter syndrome, and that's babies born with two X's and a Y. So really, I mean, what would happen is that the Y chromosome kind of directs this baby to be mm-hmm. male. Um, and that's, you know, they, they consider themselves male. There's no problem, same, except that they're infertile. Right. So most of them only present late in life. Um, yeah, more interesting. Well, not more interesting, but <laughs> um, there's this phenomenon of hermaphroditism. So that's kind of middle, you know, maybe large clitoris or, or micropenis. And in those cases, babies are actually born half and half. I mean, mm. totally ambiguous. So what was done surgically in the past, in the 50s, was to just wash their hands of the problem they said, well, we're not sure if this is a boy and a girl or a girl, so we'll just make it a girl. And that's exactly what happened. They told the parents, raise her as a girl, never tell her. And there were all these problems as soon as the kids hit puberty. I mean, half of the time they'd got it right, but half of the time they'd got it wrong. And that's that's just all to do with um, brain development. Yes. So. so maybe they should have waited until the kids could say what they wanted. Exactly. And that's, I think that's what's finally starting to happen now that they have all these horror stories of people not understanding why they didn't feel right in their own body. And hmm. yeah. And there, there are another, I mean, there are, there are some other syndromes that are like hermaphrodites. It's just to do with um, receptors um, of the hormones, the sex hormones. So um, in some male babies, their receptors just can't um, process testosterone. So they, they just develop as female, they think of themselves as female, and uh, exactly the same situation. So it would, it would kind of prove that hormones do have a very large role in gender identity. Yes. So, so they're actually XY. 
They're, yeah, they're XY. But they're, because they can't process testosterone, they grow up as women and they feel like they're women. Yeah, but they're, they're XY, so they still have testes, mm. which are undescended. And, yeah. So they're infertile again. Exactly. Yeah. Very, very interesting. I mean, mm. it's, it's, we think of gender as this um, male or female, but more and more it's seeming like the lines are getting blurred, especially mm. with pollution, apparently. And now on to the three greats that we've chosen to focus on tonight's show. Starting with Rosalind Franklin. You may or may not have heard of her. Rosalind Franklin was actually the X-ray crystallographer responsible for inspiring Watson and Crick's double helix DNA model. In fact, didn't she do a bit more than just inspire? I mean, yeah, she pretty much came up with most of the the structure of DNA. Um, it was it was a bit of a rat race, though. There was there were three groups working on it. So there was Rosalind and her partner Wilkins. There was Watson and Crick, and there were these two other scientists called Pauling and Corey. And uh, Pauling and Corey actually got it completely wrong. So they they ended up being published in Nature, but with with the wrong structure. And uh, Watson and Crick were very enthusiastic about publishing their their DNA hypothesis, but they actually didn't get it right the first time. Um, they, they had to actually speak to Franklin and her partner Wilkins before they got the right idea. Right. Um, but she, she sounds like an interesting character, I'll tell you that. Um, she was very good at what she did, um, very serious about it, and it sounds like she was a little bit of a terror. Um, it says here that she had the habit of just staring intensely when she spoke to people. And she was borderline, or actually probably um, directly confrontational, which in the 50s was was quite shocking for women, and particularly quite shocking for Wilkins, whom she worked with. He had the reputation of being painfully shy, unable to look at people, and stammering. and um, So I can just imagine what those two must have been like working. They, the, the story goes they didn't get on very well. So what actually happened is um, Franklin established these beautiful pictures of DNA, which were necessary to get published because they, they you can dream up any structure, but you do need the proof. So what Watson and Crick did was they, they went to visit Wilkins to um, see if they could get pictures of these DNA crystals to include in their paper with the incorrect structure. Yes. So what happened is... Uh, Watson went over to Wilkins' office, and Wilkins wasn't there. So he meandered over to Franklin's and uh, started implying that maybe, perhaps, she hadn't analyzed the data correctly because it didn't fit with his theory. Franklin just explodes. Watson reels out of her office, and Wilkins, who's heard all the commotion, is just kind of coming up to see who Franklin is probably, you know, degrading now and bumps into Watson and Wilkins commiserates and says here take this photograph photograph 51 the famous one um and Watson takes the photograph goes back and figures out the right structure of DNA because these photographs were a lot better than anybody else's at the time yeah so so Watson and Crick appropriated this photograph with Wilkins knowledge um and uh 
they, they kind of had to wait to publish their paper because Franklin was very serious. She, she didn't want to rush into any publication. So she didn't want to rush the, the DNA structure until she was absolutely certain that she had got it right. Whereas Watson and Crick really kind of ran for it. They, they wanted to publish as quickly as possible. Um, and they waited until the day after Franklin quit her job. Ooh. Wilkins gave him gave them a call and said, "All hands to the pump, go for it." And uh, and that night, Crick was actually heard overheard in the pub to say he had quote unquote found the secret of life. So they published their paper in 1953, and uh, between all of this time. Rosalind Franklin put together her own paper, but was only actually published third in Nature, and she she wasn't published within her own right. She was published more as a supporter of Watson and Crick, which isn't actually how the story goes, now that we know. Yes. Um, and she went on to do really fantastic things. Um, she passed away really early. She had ovarian cancer and, and died at 37, but all throughout her illness, she actually established the um, crystal form of the poliovirus. Wow. So she kept working right up to the end. She had seven publications during the time that she was being treated for cancer. That's amazing. Yeah, it, she is quite a strong, strong woman. And uh, she passed away in 1958. And she missed out on the Nobel Prize. She missed out on the Nobel Prize, which was awarded in 1962. And as some of you may know, there's no posthumous Nobel Prize. So she was never given the honor. So, in fact, Rosalind Franklin's death certificate reads, A research scientist, spinster, Daughter of Ellis Arthur Franklin, a banker. A very succinct death certificate, which I don't think adequately highlights the great contribution she had in science. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think that's a, probably a good summary of, of her character. That's right. Rosalind Franklin. And speaking of strong women, I'm sure most of you have heard of Marie Curie, the woman who coined the term radioactivity. And in fact... She isolated two elements, one called polonium, she's Polish, and the other one called radium. Because it's radioactive. Exactly. They, they had discovered radioactivity before, um, Bechrel. I don't, I don't think they understood the ramifications of it. And Marie and, and her husband, Pierre, um, really, really pushed forward and, and um, isolated all these elements and started experimenting with them and x-rays and all that stuff. So... Um, she was given the first Nobel Prize ever as a woman, which was the Physics Nobel Prize for radioactivity. And then a few few years later, she was given another Nobel Prize in chemistry for the discovery of those two elements. And she was the first person to win two Nobel Prizes. Mm. It's pretty amazing. And she has a unit named after her. She does, yeah. Her, her and her husband, as the story goes, couldn't afford the trip to Stockholm to pick up the Nobel Prizes, but what they chose to do with the money was help fund all their students' research. Amazingly, Marie Curie was just completely dedicated to furthering scientific research. Um, not only did she give all of, I mean, almost all of her Nobel Prize money to her students and to research and created these amazing research facilities both in Paris and back in Poland, she didn't, she chose not to patent the radium isolation process, which is really amazing, it, just so that more researchers would have a chance to you know, dabble in radioactivity. So she was really a pioneer as to the dedication of research. She didn't lead a glamorous life per se. I mean, she, she was always in her lab, but she was very passionate about her work, and in the end, it's what killed her. Um, and even today, if you want to see her original papers from the 1890s, you still have to wear protection. 
So her papers are radioactive. Her papers and her cookbook. Beautiful and circular, if you think about it. (laughs) (laughs) So, and uh, Albert Einstein is quoted to say that she is the only person that has not let fame get to her. She was completely uncorrupted and dedicated to her craft. And I believe Ian is going to tell us a little bit about Rachel Carson. Yes, Rachel Carson was famous for the book Silent Spring of 1962, which was about pollution and pesticide, and in fact led to the nationwide ban, well, not just nationwide in America, but banned all around the world, in first world countries at least, of DDT, which was used originally to kill mosquitoes and just about every other pesticide. It was the bug killer. Mm. And it also led to the grassroots environmental movement and the Environmental Protection Agency. The EPA. The EPA, which has been emulated in other countries around the world as well. Mm. So it just didn't exist before. There was no environmental protection before her research? That's right. That's right. There was, And that was one of uh, Richard Nixon's accomplishments was to, because he was president at the time and he created the Environmental Protection Agency, one of the good things he did. She actually found that DDT was a really stable compound and it accumulates in the environment and particularly um, was taken up by birds and made their shells very, very fragile. And more and more what was happening was that the, the birds just weren't hatching because they would just kind of crumble. And that's why it's called Silent Spring, because one year she just noticed that it was quiet. And it was also a bit of a warning of the future. Yes. Maybe spring would be silent from now on. She was also against 2,4-D, which was another pesticide, and she had opposition from DuPont and the Velsicol Chemical Company, also manufacturing Claudane and Heptachlor. According to environmental engineer and Carson scholar, H. Patricia Hines, Silent Spring altered the balance of power in the world. No one since would be able to sell pollution as the necessary undersign of progress, so easily or uncritically. In 2007 was the centennial of Rachel Carson's birth. There was a resolution celebrating Carson for her legacy of scientific rigour coupled with poetic sensibility. But the resolution was blocked by Republican Senator Tom Coburn in Oklahoma, who said the junk science and stigma surrounding DDT, the cheapest and most effective insecticide on the planet, have finally been jettisoned. So even after her death, people were still trying to claim that DDT was really safe. So she's alerted the world to the dangers of pollution and pesticides in particular. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion Science Radio. You can contact us with praise, comments, or suggestions for following show topics to science at diffusionradio.com. Or you can podcast our show at www.diffusionradio.com. You've been listening to Victoria Bond and Ian Wolfe. This show has been produced in the studios of 2SER Community Radio 107.3 and produced by Ian Wolfe. Tune in next week for more Wacky Science. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. 
Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.